Talking industry, topical debate from the world of engineering, automation, and manufacturing. A DFA Manufacturing Media production. Brought to you by... Cool car. Okay, uh, um, I'll, I'll come to Robert in a minute because uh, because you're due for your presentation anyway. Um, does anybody want to make any more points about the additive manufacturing process and its capabilities and its limitations? Maybe, maybe Alan wants to chip in. Yes, please. Yeah, just to say, you know, the um, I, I know I go back to the original um, uh, relationship between. Uh, AWM and then um, some of the guys at, at Cranfield who they're now part of part of WAM 3D uh, in the very er, early stages which is I don't know what did we say 16 years ago or more something like that yeah uh, and you know it was you know really an exciting um, project for, for, for myself you know and I managed to persuade our uh, our CEO in Germany to uh, load some equipment to, to Cranfield and uh, it took quite a number of years to um, to justify that, but we, you know, we, we certainly did with the, the developments in the process. And this is the kind of, of where the relationships between um, different areas of expertise in in um, in welding power sources, in the WAM process, and 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 the robotic side with 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 um, cooker and and you know handling side as well with um, with integration uh, companies is is that bringing all this together couldn't happen without without all, all factors of it. Um, you know, we've got processes. We were asked, you know, um, Neil mentioned there, aluminium. You know, we produce a plasma power source, uh, a DC plasma power source. We were uh, asked about an AC-DC plasma machine. Now, you know, I, I we don't produce, or we didn't produce an AC-DC power source for AC output on plasma, um, but the request was there from... Uh, from the Cranfield one or the, or the the people involved in developing this process that we'd like to move into aluminium in the in the future and you know we said we've got no experience of plasma aluminium for this but we can produce a machine that's capable and, and now the process has been refined for additive with aluminium by people who know the additive process they know it better than we do we knew, know the power sources we know how to produce the power source to do to do what they need to do but Developing the process is kind of um, we can learn something from it, from it as well, you know. And where where I see um, the industry going or the process as as, as one is, um, we've done a little bit of work to um, trying to make it more more readily available in in the same way that that robot technology is now to more companies in that additive as a as an option rather than casting or or, or in machining down components can be, you know, be in mild steel on a, on a smaller scale to produce components bespoke for, for uh, a company's application to produce, uh, um, let's say, a smaller additive system that they can use and can be affordable for that particular um, area of the industry that they can, you know, to make it accessible for all, I think, is the, is the goal, as well as the, you know, the big investment that came in the beginning from from the aerospace industries because of the huge savings when we were talking about um, titanium, et cetera, when you're talking about 80% wastage from a, a, a slab or an ingot of, of, of titanium to save that much is, you know, obviously it's um, it's a no brainer to go that route to save it. But now to make it a little bit more accessible, I think is where 
potentially it could go in the future. But you know, that's the importance of all the parties to um, to work together, and it's worked yeah. very well over a number of years. And I'm going to visit Wham for the first time on Monday, I think. Quite excellent, excited. excellent. Well, we'd be interested to hear how uh, how that goes, and maybe you could uh, drop us a comment into our uh, LinkedIn pages so yeah, that, absolutely. Uh, we can keep the conversations going. Robert, it's uh, it's your chance now to um, tell us about TWI's work in introducing intelligence into automotive, sorry, into automated welding uh, and to improve the responsiveness of robots using different types of sensing or analysis. Sure. So I'll pick up actually on one of the questions that did come through on the chat, sort of looking at sort of inspecting welds in situ, in process examination, that sort of thing. And there's been sort of comments there about so sort of seam tracking and seam welding systems where the robots are responsive to change in seam position or joint gap. And that's fairly well understood nowadays. So, you know, you got a laser line scanner, and I'm sure Kukuri can tell you all about the technical details of how those work. But there's a bit more above and beyond that sometimes where, you know, we talked about de-skilling or the lack of sort of skilled welders. And that visual element of welding isn't quite there with the robotic systems yet. You know, we have at this point a range of systems for in-process monitoring. So they are sort of laser illumination systems where you have a bandpass filter or you have high dynamic range cameras, which sort of equalize the brightness across the entire sort of process. And we've done a lot of work. There's been decades of work in some cases on sort of machine vision systems, looking at how the well pool changes shape, but it's still not quite there in terms of sort of feeding it back to well quality element. So if you're watching with a, say a camera in position behind the weld, it can't necessarily gauge the depth of penetration beneath it very well, because that's something that's involved in both the shape of the whirlpool, the the, cap, the um, convexity of it. There's a whole bunch of features that a skilled welder is looking at that robots haven't quite picked up on yet. And that's probably the next few years work where we have vision systems that are more than just a laser line scanner being fed back to a control system. That's an ongoing research project for a lot of people, essentially. And vision can be monitored either by, um, should we say, as say traditional vision, traditional vision monitoring processes, so you have brightness contrast thresholding. There's also neural networks now, which are becoming a another hot topic of interest for people. They're, they're a difficult one because you need to give have a lot of background data that you then use to train your model or build your data set. And unfortunately, of course, people are doing different geometries, different materials. Those images look very different. So that's not quite there yet, but we're all still backing, bashing heads against the neural network wall. It's an interesting one, though, because, you know, we've talked about how good robots are, and there's a lot of improvements over a person in many ways. You know, they're, they're repeatable. They are adaptable in ways that people aren't, you know, moving to different positions, you get a torch in very small areas. But they're not quite as adaptable where yet you can throw a bit of metal at a welder. He'll hate you for it, but he'll weld it. That's not quite there for robots yet. You know, we've got, we're getting there. Robots can now sort of scan apart, almost build a seam path and follow it around, but it takes a lot of intelligence. And that's that's the goal we want to get to, course, when we say, right, there's my part, weld it. And we're not quite there yet, but there's a lot of good work being done on all of those elements. And for additive, it's a similar project. You know, you, can, you build a tool path for a given part, but as mentioned earlier, there is a lot of thoughts about how the welding tool path builds up parts together. You, heat control is quite important. That will affect your metallurgy, your end result. There's a lot of intelligence that isn't quite 
easily convertible to digital form just yet because it's so many different things. You think about welding procedures, you have 40 or 50 factors on a sheet. We've got a, we've got a really good grasp on a lot of those robots now. We've got our positions, currents, voltage, all of that. That's great. But there's a few tips and tricks yet that we just haven't quite digitized because it can be so variable. You know, we discussed supply chain issues for robotic timelines, but your material, your material inputs, they vary a little bit sometimes, not a lot, but a bit too much for sulfur or phosphorus in your steel and your, your penetration changes. So there's these little bits and pieces that can affect the robotic welding process in entirely unexpected ways that we'd love to be able to have the perfect answers to for everything yet. You know, one app, army steel is a bit under penetration, what do I do? And we're getting close, but we're not quite there yet. So as a welding engineer, I'm not quite panicking yet that robots gonna take all my jobs, but there's certainly a, a lot of good work being done on it. And maybe 20 years time, you, you know, you, you will throw a part on a table and the robot just weld it for you, which would be lovely. So th what, that's what, a very roundabout way of sort of coming back to, yeah. at the minute we have people who are very clever, just by being evolved to be clever. So you, ha you have eyes, you have ears, you have hands, they all work together really seamlessly. Recreating that on a robot is a lot of work. And it's quite impressive how far they've come into the last sort of 30 years from where you could do a straight line to here's a part, you use a tool, a cobalt type system to just drive it, a torch around it, and that the welding just for you. Another 10 years could be impressive again. This is where artificial intelligence comes in, isn't it? So I, I, I suppose let, let's, let's maybe have a quick um, circulation around the panel as to where they think uh, artificial intelligence might influence um, the, uh, the sort of issues that Robert has raised um, within, I don't know, 10, 20 years or whatever. Kevin, what, what do you see in that area? Uh, very, very interesting topic. I can actually see that happening uh, quite readily, uh, especially in the additive field um, where sensors are, are definitely used to bring in the data robots are using to compensate wire feeds that you're controlling everything and looking at everything. And now algorithms are so powerful that you can actually do much more with them than what you could have done before because it was, um, very uh, monolithic in some ways where you're adjusting the wire feed because you knew how you had to do this. The robot wasn't able to compensate in the same way. And that's going back, you know, 10, 15 years ago. It was one program. You were always making the, the adjustments probably with the robot trying to keep the wire feed, feed speed and, and deposition rates in, uh, all in situ for the, the main process where now it's completely different. You're changing everything for every aspect of the build. And the power of the software and the and the AI side of it with the sensors. So you have your virtual and you've got your actual and it's being compared all the time where uh, that is a huge, huge milestone in, in, in the sector alone. Uh, but I can see that trickling down into the common uh, uh, through the power sources, having visual cameras. Uh, in, in the cells, uh, different angles as well, just for the, the basics. And, and what uh, Robert was kindly going through with AI is, is really uh, going to become our reality of every, every day and common thing. Um, Alan was highlighting the fact that the robot was able to compensate, uh, you know, with the, the torch angles changing. That, that quality aspect alone is, is come a long way. And it helps us when we have uh, parts without perfect fit up 
that's a compensation uh, event that happens automatically without us even making adjustments in the robot. So using all these different elements that exist already to the next level is definitely going to be happening, in my opinion. We, we, we've <laughs> just been asked a question, Robert, before I go and ask everybody else. Um, what, what are you seeing as the technological barriers in developing the Nirvana system that you described in fully autonomous welding? What's holding us up? It's probably been two things for a while. The first was just sort of raw computing power. You know, you, you, if we're going to say to uh, vision analysis, that involves a lot of data. Often you have sort of taking, say, 50 or more frames a second, and you're analyzing that image and processing through. That's, that goes, with time, that just goes away. You know, Moore's law says every 18 months, you double your computing power. That's just a waiting problem, essentially. The other one is more, is defining the rules. It, you, it's, it's the time it takes to develop what the rules actually are. So a manual welder, might not be able to tell you exactly what he's done or why he's done what he's done. It's a learned skill where you spend, you know, years on the tools and you know that if the pool operates in a certain way, you, you, you've got a little slower. Turning that from a welder's eye and hands to a computer algorithm, we might be, for instance, say, if we perceive a change in brightness of 10% in the first five millimeters of the well pool reduce speed by 20%. How you define those rules is, is time and effort and a lot of experimentation essentially. And it's going through the process of just making the slight changes, working out what happens, and then recreating that as a process on all the different materials, all the different processes, that sort of thing. So it's converting a, quite a nebulous manual skill to a, a very sort of rigid and um, set down set of commands and how those actually feed through. And to me, there's a massive difference between trying to automate or being fully autonomous on things that are highly variable coming in, welded joints, pipeline joints, for example, where you have a valety of mismatch and root gap, high lows, and all these things, and things that are relatively controllable. Um, in terms of the way that they're set up, how they're fit up, the temperature at which they're set up, and the things that are controllable. Um, I mean, for us, we start very often, we start on a flat plate. Um, so the things that are controllable on the input are highly likely to be fully controllable. Um, or, or, do you know what I mean? We can realize that full control over that build on things that have a straightforward input. When you start throwing variability on the way in, then sure, do you know what I mean? This is going to be difficult to automate that. But sometimes I think automation can be seen as a nirvana. It's not a fix-all for every weird and wonderful problem. This Talking Industry episode is brought to you by... Cool Car. That's a good point, Neil. I was going to make the same point that, you know, I know... Um, you, know you, you, you must what? be working with people that just do hundreds of the same thing. They put it in, it's all fit up, it's all squared up nicely. Yes, there's a bit of variability, but then they press the button and they chuck it out. Do you know what I mean? That is awesome. Yeah. But things like KUKA's touch sense is, is, is excellent, right? And they have the the, the, the the same tracking as well, but they should still be used as a crutch and there is no substitute for good jigs and fixturing. Yeah and tolerance of product and if the market moves towards uh well the software will calculate it 
I don't think we're, we're we're not at the Nirvana state yet. So until we're there, you know, there is no substitute for good quality um, jigs and fixturing, you know, and making sure the product's intolerance. Yeah, and setup and the way the machine sets up. Do you know what I mean? Ultimately, it's a physical process. Do you know what I mean? Uh, sometimes people see welding as a, a black art or magic, but I mean, ultimately, do you know what I mean? This is exactly as you were saying, Bob, but do you know what I mean? It's a bit of bio, it's a bit, not biology, <laughs> it's a bit of physics, it's a bit of chemistry, do you know what I mean? It's metallurgy. They're physical things. If everything's set up right and, and you understand the operating limits and the operating variables, then those can be controlled. Alan, you do you, do you want to uh, comment sorry, on that? Sorry, sorry Neil. Go on. Sorry, it's just really hard to talk in such general terms. Mm. Such a wide topic. It is a wide topic, yes. Yeah. So, uh, Alan, uh, the, the issue of power sources was mentioned uh, by Robert. So, uh, where do you see this going in ten years? From where we are now, or heading towards now, is you know making the um, you know from the the power source parameters, et cetera, which is uh, we now have a system where we have a barcode scanner where, you know, parameters can be components can be presented for, you know, to a robot, to a to a, a manual welder with a barcode, a barcode on it that's scanned. And then um, after that scanned in, the machine's ready, ready to weld and, and developing that further as I've just just some slides that are um, on this presentation that's behind me at the minute, uh, showing how the, you know, robot movement could that be pro that can be programmed into, to um, to also be part of the, the um, in this barcode. Sorry, uh, what, nobody's getting the message that my phone's supposed to be on. You're busy man, Alan. Yeah, um, yeah. That you know, through through this, that a component can come into in front of a robot or in front of a, a manual. Well, uh, with everything presented to it, correct, ready to go, and uh, you know, as the um, with perfect fit up, of course, um, or within within tolerance that uh, you know there's there, that there's that that um, you know that situation that you know that how do we how do we make a robot compensate for you know for bad fit up? Is you know my my answer is we remove the bad fit up from the beginning. You know, spend a bit more time. Uh, you, you know, in producing, correct. You know, you want you are, you have a robot that's and a welding power source that you want it to produce the optimum results and give you hundred um, percent quality every time. Uh, and you know, then you know you you find something with you know one mil gap at one end and three mil at the other. You know, there's something something's broken down somewhere in the chain. Uh, and yes, you know, to an extent. That's the skill of a of a manual welder that you you know I, I hope uh, that you know we'll never be in a position where we don't need manual welders. This is all to to um, to complement and to take advantage of the knowledge and skills that are in the you know in, in that's still required to, to get a robot to produce the results. We still need the input from the from a skilled man, but you know it is moving more away from that where. You know, simply because of the way the industry is, there isn't enough people to do that. So, you know, where one would be producing uh, a sample piece, for example, and then from this is the um, the barcode is is then produced. So this this now can be entered into um, a production environment of uh, of 20, 20 welding stations, be they robots, be they 
Manuel Welders, but that's the experience from from one or two people is, is being reproduced and, and took full advantage of. And um, as as Robert was saying, there's to that stage where the robots can then have a component delivered in front of it and work everything out for itself. Then you know, I don't know. <laughs> I I think it is something that is possible in the future. I don't know how far away from that we would be, but uh, I don't think. 25 years ago, we'd be thinking that we were producing uh, turbine blades for, for an aircraft out of a, a flat plate of steel and then having a, a result that goes on an aeroplane a number of hours later. I don't think we were going to con consider being in that position then. So lo lots of things are, are possible. Yeah, and, and um, things are moving faster and faster as we as we get older and older. So uh, yeah, unfortunately, we'll probably be very surprised to see what will happen in 10 years' time. Um, I'd, I'd like to just take um, a few of the more technical questions um, before we finish. Um, the, the first one actually was aimed at Redmond, um, but I suspect others might want to talk as well. And, and the question was, how do robots cope with mismatch and gaps in the substrates? Um, uh, and, and really, it's a question about minimum fit-up tolerances. And then the same person later on has asked um, or has commented really that you can have the best ultimate jigging and component tolerances, but you can never compensate for heat distortion in real time. So maybe that's uh, a couple of questions that you might like to lead on. So I can answer the first, like the software that's available from the likes of Kuka with TouchSense and, and, and SeamTrack can help with that as well as the tolerance question, yeah, there is minimum tolerances that need to be uh, abided by. Um, of course, TouchSense will help with, um, you know, being a, being a crutch in, in those systems. But, um, you know, you should really set, set, set it up for success and put in product wood intolerance and have good quality jigs and fixturing. The second point on the the, the terminal expansion, um, yeah, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not a... I'm, I'm not a, a technical welder, but but I, but I do understand that point. Really, my point is on jigs and fixtures is around setting yourself up for the best chance of of success. Um, and 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 I think Neil has answered from 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 one perspective. Then after that, thank you. Anyone want to add anything to that question or the answer? I agree if, with Redmond in in uh, the tooling gives you your best success and really using uh, the software that's available today uh, to your advantage, it can only help because at the end of the day, you wanna have the best part possible. So adding a, a few thousand pounds worth of uh, software on the front end to get the better results in the end without having to do rework. And that's one of the, the biggest things that we find is that we've gone into a few different companies and they say, well, I've got someone doing rework uh, employed full time, and th that alone, if you can use a robot to do uh, 85 to 90 percent of the work up front and reduce that rework time, um, and just using them for the hard parts, it just makes life so much easier for different companies. The skill is in the in the labor, doing the hard stuff. Get the robot to do the the long and, and mundane work because people have uh, attention spans that are that are very small these days. And I was in a company the other day, uh, and that was their exact uh, scenario. Uh, we don't, our, our guys don't like doing uh, mundane work, and <laughs> they'd, they'll do it if they have to, but their choice is not to. 
they want to do skilled work and let's get the robots to do the work that people don't want to do. Does that slightly conflict with the concept of, you know, AI to, to make the robots much more capable of doing skilled work, if you like? I mean, it, how, how does that? Yeah, well, I guess you need to be able to scan every single part of that part and, and depending, because it's relative, obviously, to the part, but you'd, you'd want to start off with something relatively easy to start with. And then at the end, um, uh, start applying those to the more complicated. And WAM and all the other processes started off exactly the same way. Simple straight lines, work your way up, and then start adding the software and the complexity. Yeah, yeah. 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 Varying degrees of complexity, isn't it? You've got to be able to understand the simple stuff to do the complicated stuff. If you don't understand the simple stuff, and you can't be repeatable on the simple stuff, you've got no hope. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I don't mean to be blunt. I just mean, I mean, you've got, to be, you've got to be simple. You've got to be simple and robust. Something to start with. That makes sense. Okay, um, one more question that's come in about what developments in vision systems and cameras um, have taken place that would make it easier to inspect worlds in situ, if any. Uh, there are a lot. Of, there's a lot of thermal imaging cameras out on the market. Um, there's uh, we we use cameras obviously to monitor deposition in real time or process in real time. Um, yeah, yeah. Is it about resolution? Yeah, speed? We're, we're seeing this happening quite a bit uh, throughout different integrators and and the end users specifying that they want to be able to see more. Uh, it's not only just the the in situ weld from um, uh, um, at the weld itself, but they want to see the robot actually physically doing it. So part of the industry 4.0, collecting that data, keeping it stored so that they see the bigger picture as well uh, is, is a really important feature. Any other comments before we move on on I'm that? I'm a bit old school. I'd just like to see them get the parameters. Get, they get the parameters right, and they get the robustness right, and they get the setup right, and they'll get it right. They won't need it. They won't need a camera to change it. And by the time the camera's seen it, recognised it, made a decision on what to do, it's a bit late. Lovely. Okay. Um, before we finish, then um, get your crystal balls out. What What do you expect? And I'll I'll ask everyone this question. What do you expect to see that's revolutionary or different um, in, or what do you hope to see in 10 years time, 20 years time, that will really turn our heads in the welding area? Um, Kevin, fire off. Oh, I would really like to see uh, the augmented uh, uh, virtual reality. So you're wearing your goggles, you can actually use your finger to drag everything. The, the, the simulation then just turns that around and you can just make it all happen using some of the more AI type applications. I really believe that that's going to be uh, the, the future, definitely, in my view. Brilliant. If I, if I may add to that, uh, Andy, uh, it was kind of following on from what Kevin was saying. I can see that the use of the augmented reality, virtual, whatever you want to call it, uh, I can see potentially, and I, I've spoke to that with the, the software company that we work with, that the potential for, you know, me in my little development center here, perhaps, uh, 
with an augmented system, virtually welding a component and somewhere the other side of the world, a robot is actually linked to it and actually carrying out the, uh, the weld seam according to what either my little robot's doing or, or even a manual welder. It's copying the, copying the movement and everything else that's, you know, in, in, in sense that you see, you know, is it, is it surgeons that can be um, operating remotely there? You know, I, I was just going to say exactly that. Yes, I mean we're already seeing it in the medical field, so it should it should be feasible to do that. Shouldn't we it? are, but uh, there's a latency issue in the quality of the internet speed on on particular sides. Seems to be a big blocker there still. And what what would your favourite option be uh, in ten to twenty years time? Then written uh, maybe faster the, internet. Speed. Robert touched Robert touched and on around this Nirvana machine where you put something into a box and it um it just recognizes it and 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 wells it essentially. I don't know if we'll get there, but secondly, if we do, using whatever three D scanners and uh, and making a three D model of the part, but if we get there, I'd like to think it might get to a price point where it would be um affordable and justify a payback period. And I think they're the blockers which. You know, the technology is there. You see a few US companies start to look at it now, but um, I haven't ever gone and checked the price of one of those systems, but I suspect it's um, it's quite high at the moment. Sure. Neil? Uh, yeah, I suppose I just want to see, um, in the same way that 3D printing kind of revolutionized the plastics industry, um, that there's a real shake up on the production of metallics with... Um, wire and arc additive manufacturing basically so there's a qualification of those components the uptake of those components repeatability do you know what i mean off the production line yeah on and that small leaves you and large scale sorry. lovely uh robert um what do you expect to see in 20 years time if we're going sort of very sort of 20 and beyond I had an excellent question once which is can you 3d print a fridge because that was getting to the point where you have the metallurgy and the plastics all together. That's when you start thinking really clever. You start to imagine complex plastics and metals, maybe not, but composite type structures, you know, is there something there that we can do with different metallic alloys together that we can sort of form in layers or gradiated to form sort of not just precise parts, but precise metallurgy for those parts. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, thing, isn't it? When you can uh, combine different types of materials with different properties. That's, uh, that seems to me to be quite a big ask, but let's, uh, let's hope we can get there. Okay, we'll, we'll leave it there. We, so, so well done, everybody. Um, thank you very much to all our attendees, and we hope you found this useful. I'd like to thank all of our speakers for an excellent contribution and for you to giving your time up to listen to us. So thank you very much. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye. This Talking Industry episode is brought to you by... Cool Car. Thank you for listening to Talking Industry. Stay tuned across all podcast apps. Follow us on social. Subscribe to our newsletters. And keep up to date at talkingindustry.org.